Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast. My name is Christy Peoples. I'm a producer here at Sounds True and I am really privileged and excited to be your host for this session. So in this session, it's a little different. Jack Cornfield is going to be joined by one of the world's most foremost authorities on and the founder of Somatic Experiencing, Dr. Peter Levine. And they're going to be discussing healing trauma in the body, heart, and spirit. And in this session, Jack and Peter are going to be discussing how best to recognize, understand, approach, and promote healing for the traumas that arise for meditators. Toward the end of this session, we are going to be taking a few uh, questions from you. So please feel free to take notes as we go. In the meantime, I want to welcome Peter and Jack. Thank you, Christy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Great to see everybody and to have you here. Before we do anything else, unless Peter wants to just do a welcome, let's also take a, a minute to sit quietly. But first, Peter, anything you want to say? No, nope, I'm all for quiet. <laughs> all right. So let's just let ourselves settle and center. Yeah. Hmm. Something came up to me while I was just sitting there. And that is, you know, uh, uh, trauma and meditation. One of the things that I think we have to start with is the realization that probably the majority of people who are attracted to meditation, the meditation communities, are people with significant amounts of trauma. So it's already self-selection that these are people that you you know, want to you know keep track tracking because they're probably a, a large percentage of them do come with significant trauma histories. Yeah, I, 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 I've seen it myself in the same way, Peter. Let me do a little bit of an introduction of Peter to those of you who don't know him um, and a little framework and then then let you go on, Peter. First mm -hmm. of all, I love Peter. He's, he's a dear friend and an inspiration and I'm enormously grateful for his work. 
um, because he's one of the people who actually created the entire field of trauma studies. When I did a PhD, you know, close to 45 years ago or 50 years ago, 45 um, they hardly ever mentioned trauma. It was crazy because half of the people who walk in the door were carrying trauma, but it was not part of the psychiatrist and psychologist curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, almost more than anyone else in the world, has made a huge difference in creating a whole understanding of this is so important. And he started in, in all different kinds of research. He's got this amazing research background, but part of it was looking at animals mm-hmm. and how animals get in situations which would be traumatic for human beings. He has these beautiful movies that apparently he can't show today because of whatever um, copyright reasons of animals being chased and hiding and then shaking out the trauma. And Peter, 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 Peter began to learn about how the nervous system of mammals and human beings actually regulate trauma. And then he created a, the architecture of a map that is the most comprehensive map I know about trauma, which includes pre-verbal trauma and prenatal trauma and, and um, or childhood trauma and trauma of commission where something happened and trauma of omission where you didn't get what you needed, no one was there for you, surgery, illness, accident, um, cultural trauma, intergenerational trauma, the trauma of losses, a whole map of the kinds of trauma and how you can recognize them or how you sense them within the body and the experience of of a person. And then he also created some of the most important principles for trauma treatment, which include more than anything, attending to the body and knowing as his partner in in this field and good buddy Bessel van der Kolk's book title is The Body Keeps the Score, knowing that the body is actually the place, not in the thoughts, where trauma opens and can be released and healed. And then he teaches a quality of what we would call mindful presence, a trust that the body knows how to heal itself in the mind. And with that, helping people resource themselves. And these are things we've talked to the trainees in this program about, that before you go into trauma, you want to have some stability in your body of a resource or a sense of well-being from another situation. And then he talks about how to titrate, to do a little at a time or pendulate, go back and forth between well-being and feel a bit of the trauma and then back to well-being so it can be be digested and not overrun who you are. All these kinds of skills. And you've had some taste of it in the training that we've done so far. Um, the question I have for you to start with, Peter, and you were beginning exactly that, is here are these people around the world who are going to be sitting in the presence of those who begin to become mindful and pay attention. And what is it that you know that they should be aware of or look for what skillful things would be helpful to them? So that's sort of an overall introduction. Right pleasure yeah yeah thank you thank you very much <laughs> did i get am i am i did i capture some of that your well, i think i think you did i think you 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 kind of nailed me as being a trauma monomaniac <laughs> <laughs> well we need you we need you in this world <laughs> you know uh, i think one of the things that you alluded to 
is the importance of giving the right support to one of to the students when they're dealing with traumatic material. You know, one of the things that I that I actually I didn't even know I wrote this. I saw this and I said I totally agree with this. Well, it turned out the person the book they gave me uh, there was they were quoting me from in an unspoken voice. So anyhow, I I, I wrote that trauma is not just or it's not so much what happened to us but what happened in the absence of that empathetic other that censored present empathetic other and that's the one that you can't substitute uh, for your presence in helping students when they do come to these these difficult times and they and they will i you know i think most everyone does and I think some uh, will be able to deal with it just from the support of the setting and the support of the teacher, the, just the presence of the teacher. But there are also uh, times when we really need to bring some specific tools to help them uh, how trauma gets registered in the body and how uh, traumatic experience is very similar in, in, in a number of ways as meditative experience. So I, I think maybe I'd just say a little bit, a little bit of that, about that. You know, um, the, the core of trauma is deep trauma, is the state of, you talked about uh, my observing animals in the, in the wild, in the natural environment. And that's been a very, very important part in creating the work that I did, somatic experiencing, because we are animals, we are mammals, you know, we have certain special features but still we are we are basically animals and uh so what what brought my curiosity is why is it that animals in the wild in their natural environments don't seem to be traumatized when they have a threat encounter with a predator if they don't escape of course then they're gone but if they do escape uh then they it would be served them poorly to carry something like trauma to the next encounter because then they would almost certainly lose the race and, and be eaten. So what are those specific things that allow animals to shake off those encounters, to discharge those encounters and to reset their nervous system to come back into equilibrium and for us to come back into equilibrium and to wholeness? Which again, as I think, is one of the great reasons why people trauma, where people meditate, is to find that connection with wholeness. There's another thing that also occurred to me when I was thinking about, you know, doing this with you, Jack, is that uh, in the meditative state of uh, quietude, of immobility, so you're sitting and sitting quietly for some period of time or at least in some meditations. And in trauma, uh, what happens is animals, in order to, to live to another day, they actually go into an immobility response. So they may be running and, 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 and escaping with all of their energy, but then when they're caught, they're brought down, they appear to be dead. They appear frozen and collapse and as though they were dead. 
But miraculously, when, for example, the coast is clear and the, and the predator has maybe been distracted in that very quick moment, they're off and they escape. So they're able to go from immobility into action. So let me just give a little demonstration here. I just have to happen to have this. So let's look at a predator and a prey. So let's look at the prey here. So let's just say we're, we're talking about a, a herd of impala. They're grazing in an upland, upland meadow. They're nurturing their young. And, uh, but, and, and so their, their energy level is like this, um, what I call relaxed alertness. They're not sleepy, they're not hypervigilant, they're relaxed and alert. Then if there's some kind of a, a few molecules of, uh, of, a, of a, a novel scent coming in from, you know, from, the, from the bushes or the, a twig snapping, and all of a sudden they come into a more alert state. They become vigilant. Then if the chase begins, they, with every ounce of energy that they, ha they have, because this, these chase between, between uh, uh, cheetahs and impalas go on at 65 miles an hour, 110 kilometers an hour. So it's this vast expenditure of energy. But then in that very moment, when the predator makes a contact with the prey and brings the prey down, all of this energy gets locked here. They don't appear to be moving at all. They're not moving at all, they're immobile. However, that energy that they were using to escape just moments ago is still held in check. So when the coast is clear, that energy is released and then they off, they go to live another day. With people, with humans, we are, that is, we are frightened by that release of energy. How, we, how that's experienced in the body. We, it really, it, it deeply frightens us. So instead of allowing it, we either, we, it either just explodes, as you see in some kinds of the exposure therapies, or um, they just keep it locked in so that it doesn't explode all at once. However, the trick in, in somatic experiencing is like you were saying, Jack, is just touching into those sensations, those trauma-associated sensations, just a little bit at a time, and then allowing the energy, the activation level to go to, uh, to, go to equilibrium. And again, a little bit more each time, and each time waiting, allowing it to come to equilibrium. So it's really a matter of titration or homeopathy where little is big. So you don't want to expose the person to the trauma all at once. That's very likely to cause re-traumatization. But at the same time, you want to give them another choice uh, rather than just suppressing this energy, this activation. And again, the idea is one small amount at a time. And when um, animals are in, in uh, immobility and they, they come out, they don't worry about, well, what if, I, what if I could have gotten killed? You know, um, what happens the next time I go out for a, a carrot run? Um, you know, could I be attacked again? They, they don't worry about that because the physiology, their physiology is cleared. So they move back into life. And again, with humans, you have to do that very slowly. The other thing 
is that immobility itself in, in people, and I, I would say arguably in animals, but certainly in people, immobility is actually extremely pleasurable when it's in the absence of fear. When you have immobility and fear, the fear and the immobility feed onto each other and you get this endless loop of immobility, fear, more immobility, more fear, and so forth. So, of course, in meditation, um, people are, I don't want to say a goal, but, you know, people are looking for these states of immobility, of stillness, of maybe something that could be described as being in the eternal now, that now just permeates in all directions, right, left, forward, back. I'm really that there is no time because it's timeless. And that's, I know for me, that's really a very beautiful experience when I've meditated, but it's also potentially scary because again, if there's fear or the possibility of fear or things don't feel safe enough in the environment, then the fear again can feed on the immobility and the immobility feeding on the fear. And I think that's, I think most meditation teachers do a pretty good job of creating an environment of safety. One of the things, you know, a, a few years ago, two or three years ago, I, I was invited to go to Plum Village, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's meditation center. And, uh, and so I was doing a lot of work because a lot of, the, of course, the people there were traumatized, especially the monks and the nuns, because many had come from Vietnam, you know, uh, during, the, during the Vietnam War. And, uh, but one of the things that I really, really took in and I really liked is that, of course, they do sitting, sitting meditation, but at least initially and primarily, they do walking meditation. And so when you're walking, you're not, you're much less likely to drop into that immobility because your body is moving and you're getting proprioceptive and kinesthetic feedback from the body that keeps you a little bit at least more in the here and now. So, um, so and then another thing that they do, which I, I thought was instructive, is after a sitting or uh, after a walking or after a sitting meditation, uh, they would meet under a plum tree uh, in groups of about 10 or 12 people. And they would share with each other something about what they experienced, what they learned. If something happened that was scary or upsetting, they would be able to talk with their, with their colleagues about that, with their friends about that. And that involves um, what Stephen Poirier calls the social engagement system. So you go from a meditative state uh, where you don't integrate, you don't um, integrate with others, you don't connect with others, to bringing some of that state for forward and connecting with others and sharing with others. And again, I, I think that's really also a very well thought out um, strategy in helping and um, helping the students um, be able to deal with difficult things when they when they emerge, but of course times hap will happen and they will happen and they do happen where a lot of fear arises, 
And that's when um, the meditation um, teachers really have to notice that that's happened. So if they were the, with a group of you know 300 people, this is not an easy task. I'm not saying it's an easy task, but they have to be in tracking, you know, in a way, all of these people so that they can see when somebody is leaving and they, they seem to be agitated. Or they can also ask, you know, please, if somebody had an experience that was a little bit frightening or, or agitating in some way, please come and sit with us for a little bit. And let's, let's just be with you together. Let's be, and talk about this together. So again, I think those are things that are, again, are very important for teachers to know and to really, really keep track of that whole family that they're teaching. Because again, they are almost certainly in any meditation that more than one and less than 300 people are almost certainly gonna be having um, traumatic-based experiences. And again, to help them to not be alone with those experiences and also to help them pendulate. And what is pendulate? So I showed you the two things in the whole world that I'll probably be known for when I'm long gone is titration, one small energy level at a time, and what I call pendulation. So when people have been traumatized, and they first make contact with their bodily sensations, which again is almost most likely gonna happen in a meditation session. As soon as they, they touch into those sensations, the sensations seem to get worse. They contract. So there's a contraction. And if people get frightened and they're not, they don't feel the safety and support, they're gonna stay stuck. But the key in somatic experiencing, and I think in, in, in trauma-based, or trauma-informed meditation is that not only do you go into the contraction, but if you're guiding the student, then that will move naturally, organically into an expansion. Then there'll be another contraction, and then another expansion, and then another contraction, and another expansion. And so learn to ride those two and to not be uh, to not be seduced by one or the other, to not be recoiled by the contraction, but also not to um, not to become enamored with the expansion, with the expansion, with the expansion. And I think when this happens, uh, you see something I'm sure you're very well familiar with, uh, what some people call the bliss bypass where you just go into these more and more ecstatic, in other words, expansive states, and you don't contract. And I think it's essential that you're able to hold together. And this is maybe one of my little minor contributions, that you have to be able to hold the contraction and the expansion together and to not just go into one or the other, to really hold them together as polarities. Of course, this is something I think Jung talked quite a bit about, but really it's essential, I think, in the meditative practice that you know both and that the idea is not to avoid one to go to the other, but to be able to touch into one, touch into the other, and hold them together. And I, I believe that's a key in trauma-informed meditation. Jack, your thoughts? Sure. So loving listening to you, let me reflect on a few things that you said. Peter, and then maybe you could go to that. Um, 
one of the things that that these teachers will experience because there will be people in that group as they get quiet mm-hmm. where their trauma will start to surface in their consciousness right. and sometimes you know there'll be a lot of emotion fight or flight like you're like the animal running and as you point out sometimes it will be freeze like it's so scary that that they freeze so first thing you're saying is just pay attention to the people in the room and if there's agitation or if there's a sense of fear or from the other hand people look like they're really stuck and frozen in some way be aware of that then the next thing that i'm hearing you say is if it looks like for an individual, well, for the group, if you notice that's happening, you can do what, what you just suggested and say, let's let the breath expand. We're not trying to hold a state, keep it there, but right. what things you can feel when they come and feel when the breath opens, give more space, and then let things relax and get quiet again. And just as your body breathes, let your heart and mind also open and close, even with the pleasures or the pains that come. So you can encourage that in the field of mindful attention or compassionate attention to all of that. Then the next thing that you said, um, which I think is important for them, is that when there is trauma and it's obvious uh, or apparent that very often it's helpful for them not to continue to sit a lot, but to say, let's do some walking meditation, or why don't you do some walking and feel your body move and be mindful and let things open from your body right. or, or something something close to that so you're not just holding it in, yeah. in the sitting posture. And then one more thing that you said mm-hmm. is um, if it looks like someone's going through stuff, you talked about how important it is to share, to say you can take them aside or say mm-hmm. when this session ends let's go and sit together and you can tell me as they did under the plum tree at plum village tell me what's going on in the very telling the teacher can say all right ground yourself find find some way to have resource now begin to let things breathe without pushing on it and so forth so those are the kind of tools i hear you um, offering in some way to these people as teachers um, and the sense that we're not trying to make a state but we're actually trying to be a kind attention that allows the body and heart to open and close and breathe. Do I have it correct? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing when you talked about, uh, you know, a person when they, they hit some traumatic material to do something like a walking meditation, but what, if it's possible, if there is, there's enough of the teachers, uh, it's really can be really, really, really beneficial to be able to walk with the person walking, but they have somebody at their side because in the past as young children, they did not have that. So it's more than a metaphor. You're actually being walking with somebody, somebody by your side. It's a very, it's a really beautiful. And you don't even have to say anything then just your presence. That's right. Just doing that, I mean, it's really, and, and it doesn't take that much. I think sometimes uh, um, meditation teachers get into trouble where they're trying to do trauma therapy with the person. And if you haven't been trained to do that, well, you need to get trained to do that before you, before you try to do that. But, yes, you need to take somatic experience training. In fact, yeah, that's a good idea. Right, at least to take the first year. I mean, really. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 And the other thing uh, that came up while you were talking to me 
is, okay, so you have 300 people and one person is starting to feel agitated or anxious. Uh, you know, so it's not going to be maybe trivial to be able to spot that one person in the whole group of, of the 300. But what I think you also notice is that when one person is agitated, everybody who's near that person will also start feeling agitated. So you see that whole part of the room uh, go into a fear reaction because we are, again, biologically prepared to when, when somebody in our tribe or, or is experiencing fear, we want to experience something like fear so we're, we're ready to escape, like with the, with the Impala. If the one Impala feel, you know, is, is experiencing threat, they want that message to go to the entire herd. So everybody is alert and getting ready to escape. So again, there's this, this uh, resonance um, that especially uh, permeate, permeates um, uh, uh, fear, but also positive emotion. When one person goes into a really integrated state, we were talking about again, of being able to kind of hold these two polarities in wholeness, then everybody in their uh, circle is also going to be experiencing something like this. So you want to make sure you know which one is which. And if, and if there is fear, I really to maybe even take the, the group together. And if it's that they're in a really positive state, really to, um, to just let them be with that and let that spread to the- And it might be that you, that you actually name it. There you are with your group and whether it's you know 10 yeah. people or, or 100 or something, and you start to notice that there's a lot of fear or there's, a, there's some settledness and a sense of joy that comes, that you literally name it. You say, ah, yeah. oh, as you're sitting, can you feel there may be fear arising? Let's hold that with, a, with expanded breath and consciousness. Or yeah. there's, there's a beautiful sense of peacefulness and well-being coming in the room. Notice that and let That's that right. open so that you become out loud with your words. You become a partner with their awareness as they're sitting together. Is that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think the key word we said was naming it. Yes. That's the first thing. That's probably the most important thing is naming it. If there's a if there's a group of people that's really agitated to have them come up and be with you and not just spreading it in the group, but also if somebody's in a state of really deep re, uh, equilibrium and, and peace just to maybe even name it and just if they want to share with just a, a word or two or a few words to what they would want maybe the group to know. So there's just so many things you can do by simple interventions. And I would say naming it is one of the most important, really, quite, quite frankly. You said when you began, there were a variety of tools that you thought could help these new teachers. And you already spelled out a number of them, moving the body, walking, having walking next to someone, naming what's happening, um, noticing, you know, and, and inviting things to expand and contract rather than to get onto any state, a number of things like that. If here's a new teacher in a group of 15, 20 people, um, and people come in and they can sense there's trauma in that group coming in. Yeah. 
how would you start? What, how would you include that even as you begin to invite them into meditation? You know what's really critical here, Jack, is that the teachers have done some of their own therapy, their own work, because otherwise you're not going to be able to stay centered and calm in that storm. And uh, so I think as teachers, we need to do that first. I mean, to me, therapy is a, a necessary luxury. You know, I mean, I've always virtually in my life um, done some kind of work. You know, when I'm in Zurich and Switzerland, you know, of course, I'm in the land of Jung, so I work with this wonderful Jungian analyst, you know, and here because attachment issues are always coming up. You know, I work with somebody near here and it's, it's just, oh, it's of such value. It's like, I can't imagine why somebody wouldn't want to do that and to really get more accessibility to their own energy, to their, their own aliveness, their own vitality, and to bring that into their presence as a, as a teacher. I mean, it just makes no sense to not to do that. So I think that's, that's for sure. You know, you really need to be comfortable. And I mean, look, all of us, especially people who are in that, this community, we've experienced significant traumas in our lives. And we need to have some sense that we can handle it, that we can stand with that hurt child, and that we can feel the love and compassion for that child, because that's the same, I think, the same kind of love and compassion that as teachers we're bringing into the group of our students. And I think when you see a, a teacher, when you meet a teacher, and they really are present, and they've done their work, you can't fake that. You know that. I mean, you can try to fake it. <laughs> it don't work. Well, this is beautiful because you're saying something that's dear to my heart as well, that our own deep work and practice, both doing your own deep retreats, so you sit and face whatever comes up in the stillness yourself, your own therapy or getting involved in a training in which you have the support to go deep with that, that this is what you then carry and, and gives you a sense of trust. You know how to be with your fear or your confusion yeah. or, or your anger because you've, you've worked with it and sat with it and explored it. And then so, all right, so here's a question that follows you. This is powerful instruction for everybody who's a teacher that, who you are is what matters a great deal and what your training is. Yeah. Suppose you're going into a traumatized community. Think of this, because there are a lot of traumatized communities, trauma from caste and race and war, yeah, and yeah. you've done this. So now yeah. you're in a room, but you're in a place where you know there's going to be a lot of trauma. And they're saying, help me, give me, you know, I heard mindfulness yeah. and attention and compassion mm -hmm. help. What do you say about that, Peter? How, okay. How Okay, number one, um, find out the way the people, those people have dealt with trauma and loss in the past. They may not have called it that, but they have. You know, uh, I'm just thinking uh, during the uh, South, uh, South uh, uh, Asian tsunami, uh, we were working in a number of those countries. I was particularly thinking about in, in Thailand. And the first thing we did 
was we went and because that was a Buddhist area, we went and we talked to the monks and we talked to the teachers. And they really weren't therapists, you know, there, there weren't psychotherapists in that area. And um, you know, they 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 really they we we taught them how to just look and see what children needed help. And so we would work with those children, usually together in a group. And the teachers were there. So they then were learning how to carry on that work uh, afterwards. So I think that was really, really important. And then the, the, the monks that we met, um, when, when we, well, we'd work with some of the children and then, you know, things go around in the community pretty quickly. And they, they realized that the children were really being helped because some of the children had, um, they, they lost their ability to walk or they had a psychogenic blindness, you know. So we worked with a number of those kids. And then when we went to talk to the monks, they said, no, of course, you, you have to work with the children because they're not old enough to, to know the Dharma yet, to have worked with the Dharma. I'm not exactly sure what that was meant. And so what they did is they gave us their temple as our, you know, as, as our, our place where we were working with the kids. They just said, take over here. So it's so important to find out what people, what their belief systems are, how they deal with loss, because everybody has loss, everybody deals with loss. And to learn about that and not to try to impose our idea of therapy onto to other people, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's so in really some crazy. cultures, it might be that they chant together or they make out prayers or they move their bodies and drum together or they they have some other kind of ritual which brings people together and also allows them to hold the grief or the sorrow in some fashion That's and right. then you say yes this is good and here's some things that that might amplify or might be helpful exactly to add to that but find out where they are how how they see their world how they deal with what loss or what we call trauma you know, and in, in, in different places, uh, you know, they, when we would talk to some of the people there, they would say, oh, uh, really talk to this person who is a shaman, because I think he, he knows the same kind of things that you do. So then we would meet with the shaman and we would talk together. And then we would uh, work with um, people together with myself and the shaman with people who are suffering from trauma. And I learned so much, I have to tell you, I learned so much just being with them and, 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 and just enjoying that and, 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 and surreptitiously being mentored. Um, you know, I remember one, uh, a, a, a man that we know in, in Brazil, he's what they call a Pio de Sant, which means a father saint. So he's in the uh, uh, Umbanda religion. He's, it's, it's a shamanic religion. And he asked me to work with this one person. Uh, and I think I was with one of my students and we worked with a person together. And then afterwards, we went over to talk to Enrique and he could just see the sadness in his eyes and he said, Yes, um, we both we both know that she's going to die soon. You know, so to make those connections and it's kind of an arrogance, I think, in a way 
to go in and to think you know what's better for these people. I was part of this program once. Oh my God. Um, it was take took place in in Connecticut uh, near Limes. I think it was when the the, the original United Nations was started there. So they brought in a group of, of therapists uh, from around the world. And we met there, therapists and academicians, and we met there for about a week. And there was one guy really, really irked me. He kept saying, the only thing that you can do when you go to a place where there's been trauma is you have to make them relive the trauma and have to make them relive the trauma over and over and over till they get the trauma out of their mind. I said, oh God, you're not kidding, are you? I hope you're not kidding. I hope you're kidding. And, you know, this was this, um, it's an exposure kind of therapy, um, critical incident therapy, debriefing. And fortunately, there were a number of people who, um, who were very much, uh, you know, the, the, we stood together. The idea was to, to, to make a curriculum for graduate students working with large-scale disasters and ethno-political warfare, warfare. So again, I mean, you really, really have to take in so much. You've got to listen way more than you got to talk. So saying this, we've now been in this conversation for 40 minutes or so. Let's invite the questions and the people that are part of the program to hear what's up for you, what is the trauma that you are experiencing as you begin to teach and some of you starting a practicum or that you've seen, um, please uh, raise your hand. Christy will bring, us, bring you onto the screen or she will have other questions for us. Thanks. Jack, and I also want to um, add to that, because this is such a large cohort, please make sure your questions are applicable to the larger group and that they're not politically oriented or personally oriented. So I want to thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank in you. advance for your consideration there. So I would like to uh, bring Bhutania Rosen forward and ask you to unmute yourself. Hi, thank you. And where are you? Uh, but I, uh, I am in Orange County in uh, oh, California. Oh, okay. that's up the road. <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, thank you for calling on me and thank you, Peter, for being here. Um, now I'm hesitating because um, I'm wondering if this question is personal, but I have you here and I'm going to go for it. Um, when I meditate, I, make, I experience extreme heat. Mm -hmm. and um, extreme heat, um, very, very unpleasant. So I think my, um, my, my uh, um, anyway, what I do with it is I stay with it. I never open my eyes, I stay with it. And I know when it's coming and, and I have this fear and whatever I do, um, there is only contraction. There is no expansion whatsoever. So I think I would like to know what really happens to my body. Like, what do I touch for this heat to come up? And then if you had any tips for me, what to do when it, when it shows up. Well, I try to speak generally. I mean, you're talking about a profound physiological response. I, I worked with a number of people who had Kundalini awakenings, but they were unable to integrate them. And it sounds like there's something like what you, something maybe like what you're experiencing, this extreme heat. 
and uh, again, and I speak generally because uh, in when you're working in these areas, sometimes you will experience profound physiological reactions like heat or cold and shivering. Uh, the question that I would ask is, as you say, you stay with it. Does it change at all? Or does it just get worse? Or, or worse meaning, what does that mean? Are you still there? Tanya? You, you were on mute, I guess. I don't know if she's gone back. Okay, well, maybe while right. we're waiting. You know, let me just maybe a simple kind of thing that I might just add. It might apply to her and other people as well, because I know this is not this is something that can, can be. Yes, yes, I am here. Okay. So um, it doesn't change. So the wave takes takes its time, yeah. and then it stops, and then another wave will comes. But it doesn't change when I look at it when I stay with it. Can I give you a really kind of simple, almost trivial thing that you might try? Please. <laughs> by your side when you're meditating have a pan with cold water maybe even with some ice and like a small towel and maybe when that heat begins just as an experiment to take that that towel wring it out a bit and then just hold it on your forehead and see if that helps you move through the heat a little bit more quickly Okay, so are you suggesting that when it happens, for me to open my eyes, for me to not stay with it as I, I am? I would doing? open, yes, I would open eyes. I would open eyes. And again, just try something like this where you're really taking something just to cool your body, to give your body the experience that it can also experience the other polarity. The polarity of, of heat is, is cool or heat is cold. So to just do that. And then just notice what happens and maybe, you know, give us some feedback of, of, of how it went. Thank you. Thank you so sure. much. Sure. And it's true what Peter said, that the elements of the body will start to move and open. So you get huge heat and fire or you can get cold or you feel solid like stone or you feel like yeah. you're floating in the air. And all these things are actually reasonably common and they require the attention to get quite big, like you're the space which can allow all those things to, to open. So yeah. Thank you. Sure. All right, Christy, let's thank you. see who's next. Good luck. Okay, let's go to Pierre Kawans, please. I'm going to ask you to unmute. Hello, and uh, thank you very much. And thank you, Peter and Jack, for these amazing, insightful uh, sharing. My question goes back to what Peter mentioned earlier about the contraction and the expansion and holding them together. So my analytical mind was going into, is it really possible to hold them together or is it more of an alternating as Jack, Jack described earlier, going back and forth as opposed to being able to really truly hold them together? Um, yeah, I think it's mostly, you know, kind of finding the rhythm. So you have these polarities and when you hold them together, something very interesting happens. 
you go into into flow. Oh, it very often happens when you're able to mm -hmm. hold those two polarities and and slosh between them. Yeah. So, by the way, where where are you calling in from? Uh, San Francisco. Oh. Okay. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And actually, a lot, lot more experimentation, but very very interesting insights. So, thank you. Yeah. Experimentation is a good word. Curiosity and experimentation they they make a good couplet. Thanks. Sure. Good sloshing to you. Good sloshing, right? <laughs> yeah, slosh good. <laughs> Thank you, Pierre. Thank you. Uh, Dawn, can we invite you to ask your question, please? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Mm hmm. Go ahead, please. We can't see you. Is your video on? Okay. She's unmute. There yeah, we go. There you go. Can you see me now? <laughs> Barely. All right. No, my video well, just should in be a on. small. Yeah, but that's okay. We can we can see you. All right. So the question I have: um, the students that I plan on teaching in our practicum, which we have upcoming is a group of ladies that I've known for a long time. And um, we've been in a recovery group together for quite a while. And I, I know for a fact from all the sharing we've done that the majority have, if not all, have had trauma, if not multiple traumas. And, you know, I really am concerned about not um, re-traumatizing anybody and I'm going to be holding this over Zoom because of COVID. Right. So I'm that makes me even more concerned. Like, am I going to be able to notice that and you know keep a good eye on that? So I just wondered if you had any suggestions for that. Jack, you have some. Yeah. Um, first of all, um, thank you for the question because it's really important and the that, you know, as a teacher, you're going to be meeting a lot of students who deal with different forms of addiction or are in recovery. And in 12-step work, meditation is formally a part of working the steps. Mm -hmm. um, what I think is, is critical is that your work isn't to go back into the traumas particularly. Um, that would be as a therapist or something else. Your work, I think, with them to begin with, is to actually help give them a, a, a resource that they can actually sit with some sense of well-being first, a kind of resourcing. Let yourself remember a time when you felt the most protected or held, or if you can't even remember that, can you find somewhere in your body where it feels like there's a little bit of stability or peace? And then let yourself feel your breath from that place as a sense that it's possible to open a doorway to well-being. Other things will come, you can acknowledge them with compassion, but our task isn't to fix them or go through them. It's more to find some, some opening to stability and well-being in the body or in your memory in a way that invites the meditation to, to help them hold where they are rather than be someplace else. Mm -hmm. 
Peter, would you add add to that? Well, I I would say that's a lot. That's a lot to add too. I mean, that's that's a good start. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm doing right now with Sounds True is doing a online program for people who have these chronic um, health pain conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, and so forth, which is a lot of people. And so I'm doing this um, video program to help them, you know, to to recover from the, those kind of conditions. And one of the exercises that I do, and you can, this is an exercise you can do with an entire group. You can do it with one person, two people, like 200 people. And it, it goes like this, to ask them to think of a time today when they felt less pain, even the smallest less pain or less anxiety, or maybe a time when they felt even something a little bit pleasant or pleasurable. And just think of that time. Or maybe it was a time when you felt most like yourself or like yourself would want to feel or to be. So the, the, the trick here is that there's no, you can't really fail with this exercise. You will always get a positive experience because nobody feels the same amount of anxiety or pain for the entire day, every single moment. So you have that one moment and then go back and forth with their awareness between that moment and whatever they're experiencing in their body. So maybe an image of that moment. Then I take the next step. So then now think of a time, a different, a different time in the last several days or a week when you felt the least pain, the least anxiety, even by the smallest amount, or maybe you felt some pleasure or something nice. And again, then just going back and or when you felt the most like yourself or the most the way you would want yourself to feel or to be, because then it builds. So it starts with a little bit of pleasure, then a bigger piece. And then I, I, I'll often do it uh, for t up to two weeks, but no longer than two weeks, because if you do it for more than two weeks, there's a possibility that they'll, they'll go right, they'll lead right into the trauma. So again, this is something that just is a really simple exercise. You can do it with the group. And it's, it, it's you know, to me, the idea is it's not separating uh, trauma work and meditation work. They really feed into each other when they're properly handled. So I think this is a good exercise, again, to do this at a meditative practice with your group. Excellent. That's a great idea. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with your practicum. It was a beautiful question. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you, Don. Let's go to Wiren Yu, please. Hi, uh, Peter and Jack. I wonder, you know, what is the difference between a human being uh, and an animal that makes uh, the animals uh, dissipate their uh, nervousness or anxiety faster than a human being. Uh, and a follow-up question is, is it, is it pleasant possibly for the uh, animal to dissipate? And uh, similar to how we experience uh, the expansion that you described. And uh, how do we you know, can hold this uh, expansion better so that we don't pendulate over uh, the border? We don't go, go over going in one direction or the other. I mean, I think the one thing about uh, animals is they tend not to judge themselves. Whereas we're actually world-class uh, athletes in, in self-judgment and critical self-judgment. So that often comes up 
And the way I generally work with that is to just is to say, okay, so um, when that thought comes up, or they may not even know it as a thought, they'll just say, I know I'm never going to get any better. I know it. I know it. I know it. And that's that negative critical self-judgment. So I'll just ask them to say this, to just prefix, I'm, I'm never going to feel better. I'm never going to feel better. To prefix it with this sentence, this is my version of CBT. I have the thought that I'm never going to get better. And it's amazing sometimes all of a sudden, like the light goes on and, oh my God, that's a thought. It's not reality because we so easily confuse thought, thoughts with reality and they ain't the same. And where, where are you? Where are you coming from, Ruin? Thank you for the beautiful answer. Uh, I live in San Mateo, California. Oh, okay. We get all these questions from California. Thank you for that. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And you were, you know, when you compare humans and animals, um, there's a certain way um, that you're also talking about the fact that we human beings have language. And language is this incredible gift, but then also we, it's programmed, it's, it's a condition. So as Peter was talking about, that language both benefits us, but we can also get entrained into the self, the judging mind and the worried mind and the anxious mind and so forth. So just to be able to recognize that already begins, as Peter points to, to free us. Beautiful, thank you. And it's a very simple thing you can do. And again, it, it's really fun when you see a person you know, do that, and they'll say, I know this isn't gonna last. I know it, I know it. Nothing I've done ever lasts. They, oh, okay. okay. So that seems, that seems like it's the reality. So again, what happens if you prefix with, I have the thought that, and then just, you know, sometimes giggles and, or, or just laughter. Because we could be able to laugh, laugh at our follies. <laughs> And just so we don't skate right by the point when you said uh, your your version of CBT, you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'd like to uh, let's go to Satyani McPherson, please. Let me ask you to unmute. Greetings. Hello. 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 I was wondering, well, I have two questions. Um, when someone has had previous traumas, perhaps childhood traumas, as well as adult traumas, and then something may re-trigger that. It may not actually be a trauma, but something that reminds them of the past trauma. Sure. And um, do you have any suggestions on how to, I mean, you have this wonderful um, quote that, it's the, our traumas are not a life sentence. Well, how do we free ourselves from that life sentence? And then the second question, you talked about walking with someone and a lot of the work that we're doing is online. And I actually love walking meditation. And I was wondering how could we accommodate that practice online and sharing it with others? So those well, are my questions. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think you can use imagination, very powerful to use imagination that we're walking together. Actually, I wouldn't mind walking with you right now where you are. It looks like you're at this wonderful beach. 
but you can just say, let's, in our imagination, both of our imaginations, let's walk together and see how it feels. Let me walk by your side and let's just walk. Do you, would you like to walk on a pathway in the forest, on a beach, uh, in, you know, in, you know, uh, by a stream? And just uh, imagine together, walking together. Imagination is very powerful. Thank you. And I'm then, sure, so where are you? <laughs> well, I'm in uh, Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I wish I were in Hawaii, but or someplace like that. Oh. And, and just <laughs> thank you. And then just with the re-triggering um, of past traumas, um, how would you suggest in working with ourselves and with others when experiencing that? Well, I wouldn't say anything really that different than what we've been talking about before. You know, again, it's the key is not the content of the trauma. And trauma very often, more often than not, I think, actually work this way where you kind of collide uh, you telescope back. So it's something that happened recently certain similarities with something that happened maybe some years ago with certain things that happened when we were a young child. So, uh, so to, uh, to, to appreciate that, to know that that's common, but also to know that the idea is you don't have to go back and relive all of your traumas. And if you can really use some of the tools we've been talking about and then bring that into the meditation uh, experience, then I think the person, you know, again, we can so get enamored with trauma. You know, it's like uh, it grabs our attention. It's fascinating. But really what's more fascinating is not being fascinated and, and just um, coming back to ourselves, knowing that these things did happen, that if it was a young child, the child was hurt, and that we do have the choice of re as the adult going back to that child and seeing what we would want they to do or to let that child know from where we stand now as an adult who has done so much work on themselves and who really knows so much more about how the world to be able to then to, to know what to do better child. Is it clear what I'm, what I'm saying? Or? It was breaking up a little bit, but it sounds like asking the child, asking the person to reflect on what the child, how the child would have wanted to be nurtured in that situation. It, and what they would have needed. Mm -hmm. And can we give some, can we provide some of that to that child? You know, again, I think that's the key, not just going back over the traumas, to know that they're not to avoid them, but not to embellish them. You know, and really to take that, that, that meditative stance, it's one more part of the experience. It's important and it's important, like Jack said, to name it, that is important, but not to embellish it. And th there's another language to use because this is such a deep question you asked. Um, and that is to be able to see this person as already free. 
that even though they've had these traumas and this is part of their human experience and sometimes terrible ones and the culture and the biography and the, the literal traumas that they live through, that that doesn't define who they are. And when they begin to notice, oh, even with my pain, there are times when there's less of it or with the trauma that they begin to realize that there's a place in them that is free and has always been that, that they can access. And from that, they can tend the trauma with compassion as they would want to offer to that child, or they can acknowledge it and release it from their body. But who they are is so much bigger than that trauma. And if you communicate that with your being, if you know that in yourself, which Satyani, I would believe you do. I'm looking at you and saying, this is a woman who knows that that is an enormous gift that allows them to realize, oh, yes, I, I have this possibility in myself, too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Satyani. Uh, we have time for one more question, and I would like to go to Redwood Reader and ask you to unmute yourself, please. Hi there, thank you. Um, speaking from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, in a place called Golden Bay. And my question is about how to encourage people to expand the win window of tolerance for experiencing mm -hmm. trauma symptoms without overloading. You know, in um, meditation instruction, traditionally we might often encourage someone to sit with whatever's arising and how can we guide people to know when to sit with it and not flee at the first sign of agitation um when is it skillful to sit with it and when is it skillful to pendulate away and how can i impart that to my students since i probably can't have a hyper awareness of what's going on for yeah. everyone in the room and um yeah, I have a little part two of that is that I've been, Peter, I've followed your work for a long time and been really interested in this concept of uh, decoupling fear from immobility. And so the essence of this question for me is also maybe how can we ensure that the meditation space is a space where that can happen, where the immobility is a good one that becomes a healing stillness rather than a well, overloaded one. The first thing is again to create the environment of safety and that is the role of the teacher and they do that by virtue of the fact that they are able to experience that safety within themselves so that they offer to their students very important it's a gift it really is a gift and the the window of tolerance when uncomfortable sensations emerge like not to flee from them and as much tool and using the tools you have so for example to pendulate and then to come back into the here and now and maybe walking around and engaging in, in some way and then at a later time also coming back to those sensations because what you're saying is 100 percent correct you want to increase that window of tolerance but you need to do that one step at a time and not necessarily in one sitting Jeff, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, again, such a great question. It points to, to the fact that meditation is an art as much as a science. Mm -hmm. And Peter, you know, emphasized the words that others used of 
interest and inquiry and curiosity. So you also want to empower, put into their hands and say, you know, you want to learn how to sit with things that are otherwise uncomfortable, your restlessness, your boredom, your fear, so that it doesn't take you over in life, that you have a sense of that compassion and mindfulness can hold this. And if they get to the extent that you work with them, you've been with them, and it feels like it's too much for the moment, you can acknowledge that. And then do some walking meditation or do some self-compassion, switch your practice around. And when it's ready, you don't have to worry. It will come back. You're not going to lose it. It will wait for you, as Peter's acknowledging. So you don't have to do it all at once. And so you give them a sense of empowerment and trust that they can learn to deepen and get bigger to hold all of their human experience. And when it feels like in the art of it, it's this is too much to stay with for right now. Shift your posture, do a different practice, move, tend yourself, talk to someone, and then go back and that will come again. You'll have another chance. And the self-hug, self-care hug is also useful, you know, in those times of trouble. And also the song, you know, the song that Paul McCartney wrote, in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, Mary, Mary, Mother comes to me. It's a, you know, that's a really, it's a song that I, I recommend to everyone because it's about really bringing those archetypal holdings that are universals. For me, it was uh, in, uh, when I first started teaching in Switzerland about 23 years ago, and uh, my uh, host took me to uh, Abbey, not far from Zurich, hour and a half, 40 minutes from Zurich, at Einstein, and this is the Abbey of the Black Madonna. And when I walked through the big doors, there was the Black Madonna holding the Black child. And without, I just, I just fell to my knees with tears streaming down my eyes. It was like I found my mother. I found my great mother. And I think we have all of us some connection to these holding presences that are greater than our own experience of ourselves. Okay. Thank you. When I hear that song, let it be in the future, I'll think of you. Thank you. Thank you. What a beautiful, beautiful last question from you, from yeah. all of you. Yeah. Well, are there any closing thoughts or comments from either of you? Thank you so much for this wonderful session. Well, I'm just glad to contribute to the, to the lineage, well, Jack, to your lineage, your lineage, where you come from and what and those you're passing on. I'm, I'm very much buoyed up by the interest of all of the, the students, practitioners, and really wanting to take their meditation experience to the next level. So it was, it's always great to hang out with you, Jack, and we, I'm looking forward to doing this in Switzerland and the Lake of Lucerne. Yeah, me too, very much. And, and I'm grateful to you, Peter, 
for this, but also, as you know, I've recommended and in fact, almost insisted in the retreat teacher trainings that I've done for some decades now, that people do trauma training, generally begin at least the first year or more of SE training. And have people, I think of a woman who I trained who's a brilliant teacher and she does a lot of work, especially in traumatized communities. And also she does work in women's prisons. But she has this big heart and she's just, you know, we have this crazy prison system where people are mm. by the millions are in prison. Um, and it's it's they're they're basically racist poverty prisons. Yeah. That, that yeah. is what they are. Um, I could weep when I say it. And she said she said, I couldn't go and do the work that I do in the places that I do if I didn't have this understanding of trauma and how to make a safe holding space for people to recognize what's in their body. So what you've offered us and what you offer the world really is that. And I just want to express my my gratitude. Thank you. So thank you. Good to be with you again. And good to meet you, Christy. Thanks, Christy. Wonderful to be with you. And the rest of you, all 339 of you. Yes. (laughs) Everyone. Walk in beauty. Lovely. Everyone, this concludes the session, the live session of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. And I want to thank you once again, Jack and Peter, for this rich and informative conversation. To all the trainees that have joined us tonight, we appreciate your questions, your presence, and participation. Everyone have a wonderful evening. Take good care. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Gute Nacht.